Hello and welcome to another special festive episode of The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. In a departure from our normal format, we present the conclusion of our seasonal story reading. So grab yourself a mince pie, find yourself a comfortable seat by the fireplace, and join us for part three of... The Canterville Ghost by Oscar Wilde, an amusing chronicle of the tribulations of the ghost of Canterville Chase when his ancestral halls became the home of the American minister to the court of St. James. Chapter 5 A few days after this, Virginia and her curly-haired cavalier went out riding on Brockley Meadows, where she tore her habit so badly in getting through a hedge that on their return home she made up her mind to go up by the back staircase so as not to be seen. As she was running past the tapestry chamber, the door of which happened to be open, she fancied she saw someone inside, and thinking it was her mother's maid, who sometimes used to bring her work there, looked in to ask her to mend her habit. To her immense surprise, however, it was the Canterville ghost himself. He was sitting by the window, watching the ruined gold of the yellowing trees fly through the air and the red leaves dancing madly down the long avenue. His head was leaning on his hand, and his whole attitude was one of extreme depression. Indeed, so forlorn and so much out of repair did he look that little Virginia, whose first idea had been to run away and lock herself in her room, was filled with pity and determined to try and comfort him. So light was her footfall, and so deep his melancholy, that he was not aware of her presence till she spoke to him. I am so sorry for you, but my brothers are going back to Eton tomorrow, and then, if you behave yourself, no one will annoy you. The ghost looked round in astonishment at the pretty little girl who had ventured to address him. It is absurd asking me to behave myself. Quite absurd. I must rattle my chains and groan through keyholes and walk about at night, if that is what you mean. It is my only reason for existing. It is no reason at all for existing. And you know, you have been very wicked. Mrs. Umney told us the first day we arrived here that you had killed your wife. Well, I quite admit it, but it was a purely family matter and concerned no one else. It is very wrong to kill anyone, said Virginia, who at times had a sweet Puritan gravity, caught from some old New England ancestor. Oh, how I hate the cheap severity of abstract ethics. My wife was very plain, never had my ruffs properly starched, and knew nothing about cookery. Why, there was a buck I had shot in Hogley Woods, a magnificent pricket, and do you know how she had it sent to table? Well, it is no matter now, for it is all over, and I don't think it was very nice of her brothers to starve me to death, though I did kill her. Starve you to death? Oh, Mr. Ghost, I mean, Sir Simon, are you hungry? I have a sandwich in my case. Would you like it? No, thank you. I never eat anything now. But it is very kind of you all the same. And you are much nicer than the rest of your horrid, rude, vulgar, dishonest family. Virginia stamped her foot. Stop! It is you who are rude, and horrid, and vulgar. And as for dishonesty, 
You know you stole the paints out of my box to try and furbish up that ridiculous blood stain in the library. First you took all my reds, including the vermilion, and I couldn't do any more sunsets. Then you took the emerald green and the chrome yellow, and finally I had nothing left but indigo and Chinese white and could only do moonlight scenes, which are always depressing to look at and not at all easy to paint. I never told on you, though I was very much annoyed. And it was most ridiculous, the whole thing. For who ever heard of emerald green blood? Well, really, what was I to do? It is a very difficult thing to get real blood nowadays. And as your brother began it all with his paragon detergent, I certainly saw no reason why I should not have your paints. As for colour, that is always a matter of taste. The Cantervilles have blue blood, for instance, the very bluest in England. But I know you Americans don't care for things of this kind. You know nothing about it, and the best thing you can do is to emigrate and improve your mind. My father will be only too happy to give you free passage, and though there is a heavy duty of spirits on every kind, there will be no difficulty about the Custom House, as the officers are all Democrats. Once in New York, you are sure to be a great success— I know lots of people there who would give a hundred thousand dollars to have a grandfather, and much more than that to have a family ghost. I don't think I should like America. I suppose because we have no ruins and no curiosities. <laughs> no ruins? No curiosities? You have your navy and your manners. Good evening. I will go and ask Papa to get the twins an extra week's holiday. Oh, please don't go, Miss Virginia. I am so lonely and so unhappy, and I really don't know what to do. I want to go to sleep, and I cannot. That's quite absurd. You have merely to go to bed and blow out the candle. It is very difficult sometimes to keep awake, especially at church, but there is no difficulty at all about sleeping. Why, even babies know how to do that. They are not very clever. I have not slept for three hundred years. For three hundred years I have not slept. And I am so tired. Virginia's beautiful blue eyes opened in wonder, and she grew quite grave, her little lips trembling like rose leaves. She came towards him, and kneeling down at his side, looked up into his old, withered face. Poor, poor ghost. Have you no place where you can sleep? Far away, beyond the pine woods, there is a little garden. There the grass grows long and deep. There are the great white stars of the hemlock flower. There the nightingale sings all night long. All night long he sings, and the cold crystal moon looks down, and the yew tree spreads out its giant arms over the sleepers. Virginia's eyes grew dim with tears, and she hid her face in her hands. You mean the Garden of Death? Yes, death. Death must be so beautiful. To lie in the soft brown earth, with the grasses waving above one's head, and listen to silence. To have no yesterday and no tomorrow— to forget time, to forget life, to be at peace. You can help me. 
You can open for me the portals of death's house, for love is always with you, and love is stronger than death is. Virginia trembled. A cold shudder ran through her, and for a few moments there was silence. She felt as if she was in a terrible dream. Then the ghost spoke again, and his voice sounded like the sighing of the wind. Have you ever read the old prophecy on the library window? Oh, often. I know it quite well. It is painted in curious black letters and is difficult to read. There are only six lines. Uh, when a golden girl can win, prayer from out the lips of sin, when the barren almond bears, and a little child gives away its tears, then shall all the house be still and peace come to Canterville. But I don't know what they mean. They mean that you must weep with me for my sins, because I have no tears, and pray with me for my soul, because I have no faith. And then, if you have always been sweet and good and gentle, the angel of death will have mercy on me. You will see fearful shapes in darkness, and wicked voices will whisper in your ear, but they will not harm you. For against the purity of a little child, the powers of hell cannot prevail. Virginia made no answer, and the ghost wrung his hands in wild despair as he looked down at her bowed golden head. Suddenly she stood up, very pale, and with a strange light in her eyes. I am not afraid, and I will ask the angel to have mercy on you. He rose from his seat with a faint cry of joy, and taking her hand, bent over it with old-fashioned grace and kissed it. His fingers were as cold as ice, and his lips burned like fire, but Virginia did not falter as he led her across the dusky room. On the faded green tapestry were broidered little huntsmen. They blew their tasseled horns and with their tiny hands waved to her to go back as they cried, Go back! Little Virginia, go back! But the ghost clutched her hand more tightly, and she shut her eyes against them. Horrible animals with lizard tails and goggle eyes blinked at her from the carven chimney-piece and murmured, Beware, little Virginia, beware. We may never see you again. But the ghost glided on more swiftly, and Virginia did not listen. When they reached the end of the room, he stopped and muttered some words she could not understand. She opened her eyes and saw the wall slowly fading away like a mist and a great black cavern in front of her. A bitter cold wind swept round them, and she felt something pulling at her dress. Oh, quick, quick, or it will be too late, cried the ghost, and in a moment the wainscoting had closed behind them, and the tapestry chamber was empty. Chapter 6 about ten minutes later, the bell rang for tea, and as Miss Virginia did not come down, Mrs. Otis sent up one of the footmen to tell her. After a little time, he returned and said that he could not find Miss Virginia anywhere. As she was in the habit of going out to the garden every evening to get flowers for the dinner table, Mrs. Otis was not at all alarmed at first, 
But when six o'clock struck and Virginia did not appear, she became really agitated and sent the boys out to look for her, while she herself and Mr Otis searched every room in the house. At half-past six the boys came back and said that they could find no trace of their sister anywhere. They were all now in the greatest state of excitement and did not know what to do, when Mr Otis suddenly remembered that, some few days before, he had given a band of travellers permission to camp in the park. He accordingly at once set off for Blackfell Hollow, where he knew they were, accompanied by his eldest son and two of the farm servants. The little Duke of Cheshire, who was perfectly frantic with anxiety, begged hard to be allowed to go too, but Mr Otis would not allow him, as he was afraid there might be a scuffle. On arriving at the spot, however, he found that the travellers had gone, and it was evident that their departure had been rather sudden, as the fire was still burning, and some plates were lying on the grass. Having sent off Washington and the two men to scour the district, he ran home and dispatched telegrams to all the police inspectors in the county, telling them to look out for a little girl who had been kidnapped by tramps or travellers. He then ordered his horse to be brought round, and, after insisting on his wife and the three boys sitting down to dinner, rode off down the Ascot Road with a groom. He has hardly, however, gone a couple of miles when he heard somebody galloping after him, and, looking round, saw the little duke coming up on his pony, with his face very flushed and no hat. "'I'm awfully sorry, Mr Otis, but I can't eat any dinner as long as Virginia is lost. Please don't be angry with me.' If you had let us be engaged last year, there would never have been all this trouble. You won't send me back, will you? I can't go. I won't go. The minister could not help smiling at the handsome young scapegrace, and was a good deal touched at his devotion to Virginia. So, leaning down from his horse, he patted him kindly on the shoulders and said, Well, Cecil, if you won't go back, I suppose you must come with me. But I must get you a hat at Ascot. Oh, bother my hat! "'I want Virginia!' cried the little duke, laughing, and they galloped on to the railway station. There Mr Otis inquired of the station-master if anyone answering to the description of Virginia had been seen on the platform, but could get no news of her. The station-master, however, wired up and down the line, and assured him that a strict watch would be kept for her, and after having bought a hat for the little duke from a linen-draper, who was just putting up his shutters, Mr. Otis rode off to Bexley, a village about four miles away, which he was told was a well-known haunt of the travellers, as there was a large common next to it. Here they roused up the rural policeman, but could get no information from him, and after riding all over the common, they turned their horses' heads homewards, and reached the chase about eleven o'clock, dead tired and almost heartbroken. They found Washington and the twins waiting for them at the gatehouse with lanterns as the avenue was very dark. Not the slightest trace of Virginia had been discovered. The travellers had been caught on Brockley Meadows, but she was not with them, and they had explained their sudden departure by saying that they had mistaken the date of Chawton Fair and had gone off in a hurry for fear that they should be late. Indeed, they had been quite distressed at hearing of Virginia's disappearance, as they were very grateful to Mr Otis for having allowed them to camp in his park, and four of their number had stayed behind to help in the search. The carp pond had been dragged, and the whole chase thoroughly gone over, but without any result. 
It was evident that, for that night at any rate, Virginia was lost to them, and it was in a state of the deepest depression that Mr Otis and the boys walked up to the house, the groom following behind with the two horses and the pony. In the hall they found a group of frightened servants, and lying on a sofa in the library was poor Mrs Otis, almost out of her mind with terror and anxiety, and having her forehead bathed with eau de cologne by the old housekeeper. Mr Otis at once insisted on her having something to eat, and ordered up supper for the whole party. It was a melancholy meal, as hardly anyone spoke, and even the twins were awestruck and subdued, as they were very fond of their sister. When they had finished, Mr Otis, in spite of the entreaties of the little duke, ordered them all to bed saying that nothing more could be done that night, and that he would telegraph in the morning to Scotland Yard for some detectives to be sent down immediately. Just as they were passing out of the dining room, midnight began to boom from the clock tower, and when the last stroke sounded, they heard a crash and a sudden shrill cry, a dreadful peal of thunder shook the house, a strain of unearthly music floated through the air, a panel at the top of the staircase flew back with a loud noise, and out on the landing, looking very pale and white, with a little casket in her hand, stepped Virginia. In a moment they had all rushed up to her. Mrs Otis clasped her passionately in her arms, the Duke smothered her with violent kisses, and the twins executed a wild war dance round the group. Mr Otis was rather angry thinking she had been playing some foolish trick on them. Good heavens, child, where have you been? Cecil and I have been riding all over the country looking for you, and your mother has been frightened to death. You must never play these practical jokes any more. Except on the ghost! <laughs> Except on the ghost! shrieked the twins as they capered about. My own darling, thank God you are found. You must never leave my side again murmured Mrs Otis as she kissed the trembling child and smoothed the tangled gold of her hair. Papa, I have been with the ghost. He is dead, and you must come and see him. He had been very wicked, but he was really sorry for all that he had done, and he gave me this box of beautiful jewels before he died. The whole family gazed at her in mute amazement, but she was quite grave and serious, and turning round, she led them through the opening in the wainscoting, down a narrow secret corridor, Washington following with a lighted candle which she had caught up from the table. Finally, they came to a great oak door studded with rusty nails. When Virginia touched it, it swung back on its heavy hinges, and they found themselves in a little low room with a vaulted ceiling and one tiny grated window. Embedded in the wall was a huge iron ring, and chained to it was a gaunt skeleton that was stretched out at full length on the stone floor and seemed to be trying to grasp with its long fleshless fingers an old-fashioned trencher and ewer that were placed just out of its reach. The jug had evidently been once filled with water as it was covered inside with green mould. There was nothing on the trencher, but a pile of dust. Virginia knelt down beside the skeleton, and folding her little hands together, began to pray silently, while the rest of the party looked on in wonder at the terrible tragedy whose secret was now disclosed to them. 
Hello! suddenly exclaimed one of the twins, who had been looking out of the window to try and discover in what wing of the house the room was situated. Hello! The old withered almond tree has blossomed. I can see the flowers quite plainly in the moonlight. God has forgiven him, said Virginia gravely as she rose to her feet, and a beautiful light seemed to illumine her face. What an angel you are, cried the young duke, and he put his arm round her neck and kissed her. Chapter 7 Four days after these curious incidents, a funeral started from Canterville Chase at about eleven o'clock at night. The hearse was drawn by eight black horses, each of which carried on its head a great tuft of nodding ostrich plumes, and the leaden coffin was covered by a rich purple pall, on which was embroidered in gold the Canterville coat of arms. By the side of the hearse and the coaches walked the servants with lighted torches, and the whole procession was wonderfully impressive. Lord Canterville was the chief mourner, having come up specially from Wales to attend the funeral, and sat in the first carriage along with little Virginia. Then came the United States minister and his wife, then Washington and the three boys, and in the last carriage was Mrs. Umney. It was generally felt that, as she had been frightened by the ghost for more than fifty years of her life, she had a right to see the last of him. A deep grave had been dug in the corner of the churchyard, just under the old yew tree, and the service was read in the most impressive manner by the Reverend Augustus Dampier. When the ceremony was over, the servants, according to an old custom observed in the Canterville family, extinguished their torches, and as the coffin was being lowered into the grave, Virginia stepped forward and laid on it a large cross made of white and pink almond blossoms. As she did so, the moon came out from behind a cloud and flooded with its silent silver the little churchyard, and from a distant copse a nightingale began to sing. She thought of the ghost's description of the Garden of Death. Her eyes became dim with tears, and she hardly spoke a word during the drive home. The next morning, before Lord Canterville went up to town, Mr. Otis had an interview with him on the subject of the jewels the ghost had given to Virginia. They were perfectly magnificent, especially a certain ruby necklace with old Venetian setting, which was really a superb specimen of 16th-century work, and their value was so great that Mr. Otis felt considerable scruples about allowing his daughter to accept them. My lord, I know that in this country Mortmain is held to apply to trinkets as well as to land, and it is quite clear to me that these jewels are, or should be, heirlooms in your family. I must beg you, accordingly, to take them to London with you and to regard them simply as a portion of your property which has been restored to you under certain strange conditions. As for my daughter, she is merely a child, and has as yet, I am glad to say, but little interest in such appurtenances of idle luxury. I am also informed by Mrs. Otis, who, I may say, is no mean authority upon art, having had the privilege of spending several winters in Boston when she was a girl, that these gems are of great monetary worth, and if offered for sale would fetch a tall price. Under these circumstances, Lord Canterville, I feel sure that you will recognize how impossible it would be for me to allow them to remain in the possession of any member of my family, and indeed all such vain gauds and toys, however suitable or necessary to the dignity of the British aristocracy, 
would be completely out of place among those who have been brought up on the severe and, I believe, immortal principles of Republican simplicity. Perhaps I should mention that Virginia is very anxious that you should allow her to retain the box as a memento of your unfortunate but misguided ancestor. As it is extremely old and consequently a good deal out of repair, you may perhaps think fit to comply with her request. For my own part, I confess I am a good deal surprised to find a child of mine expressing sympathy with medievalism in any form, and can only account for it by the fact that Virginia was born in one of your London suburbs shortly after Mrs. Otis had returned from a trip to Athens. Lord Canterville listened very gravely to the worthy minister's speech, pulling his grey moustache now and then to hide an involuntary smile. And when Mr. Otis had ended, he shook him cordially by the hand and said, My dear sir, your charming little daughter rendered my unlucky ancestor, Sir Simon, a very important service, and I and my family are much indebted to her for her marvellous courage and pluck. The jewels are clearly hers, and ye gad, I believe that if I were heartless enough to take them from her, the wicked old fellow would be out of his grave in a fortnight, leading me the devil of a life. As for their being heirlooms, nothing is an heirloom that is not so mentioned in a will or legal document and the existence of these jewels has been quite unknown. I assure you I have no more claim on them than your butler, and when Miss Virginia grows up, I dare say she will be pleased to have pretty things to wear. Besides, you forget, Mr. Otis, that you took the furniture and the ghost at a valuation, and anything that belonged to the ghost passed at once into your possession, as whatever activity Sir Simon may have shown in the corridor at night, in point of law he was really dead, and you acquired his property by purchase. Mr. Otis was a good deal distressed at Lord Canterville's refusal, and begged him to reconsider his decision, but the good-natured peer was quite firm, and finally induced the minister to allow his daughter to retain the present the ghost had given her. And when, in the spring of 1890, the young Duchess of Cheshire was presented at the Queen's first drawing-room on the occasion of her marriage, her jewels were the universal theme of admiration." for Virginia received the coronet, which is the reward of all good little American girls, and was married to her boy lover as soon as he came of age. They were both so charming, and they loved each other so much that everyone was delighted at the match, except the old Marchioness of Dumbleton, who had tried to catch the Duke for one of her seven unmarried daughters, and had given no less than three expensive dinner parties for that purpose. And strange to say, Mr. Otis himself. Mr. Otis was extremely fond of the young duke personally, but theoretically he objected to titles, and to use his own words was, Not without apprehension, lest, amid the enervating influences of a pleasure-loving aristocracy, the true principles of republican simplicity should be forgotten. His objections, however, were completely overruled, and I believe that when he walked up the aisle of St. George's Hanover Square, with his daughter leaning on his arm, there was not a prouder man in the whole length and breadth of England. The Duke and Duchess, after the honeymoon was over, went down to Canterville Chase, and on the day after their arrival they walked over in the afternoon to the lonely churchyard by the pine woods. There had been a great deal of difficulty at first about the inscription on Sir Simon's tombstone, but finally it had been decided to engrave on it simply the initials of the old gentleman's name, and the verse from the library window. The Duchess had brought with her some lovely roses, which she strewed upon the grave, 
and after they had stood by it for some time, they strolled into the ruined chancel of the old abbey. There the Duchess sat down on a fallen pillar, while her husband lay at her feet, smoking a cigarette and looking up at her beautiful eyes. Suddenly he threw the cigarette away, took hold of her hand, and said to her, Virginia, a wife should have no secrets from her husband. Dear Cecil, I have no secrets from you. The Duke smiled as he answered, Yes, you have. You have never told me what happened to you when you were locked up with the ghost. I have never told anyone, Cecil. I know that, but you might tell me. Oh, please don't ask me, Cecil. I cannot tell you. Poor Sir Simon. I owe him a great deal. Yes, don't laugh, Cecil. I really do. He made me see what life is, and what death signifies, and why love is stronger than both. The Duke rose and kissed his wife lovingly. You can have your secret as long as I have your heart. You have always had that, Cecil. And you will tell our children some day, won't you? Virginia blushed. And so we draw the curtain on this festive tale from the good friends of the good friends of Jackson Elias. It only remains for us to thank you, our listeners, for gracing us with your attentive presence. And, of course, our most excellent readers. Dom Allen, John Casey, Rena Henzi, Mike Percival Maxwell, Sue Savage, and Scott Dorwood. So, good night, one and all, and have a most lively Saturnalia. <laughs>